addressed, I guess, for uh, better terminology, addressed the raunchy person, the, the pagan, the, the godless person who ignored God's revelation and instead was given over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, as Paul described. And in chapter 2, Paul goes after the religious person, the person that was trusting in themselves. And the way they did it was by tearing everyone else down. And if you tear everyone else down, you look a whole lot better to yourself. So Paul went after them. And now in chapter 3, Paul takes on the rebellious person, the person who, although has already been de declared being guilty, keeps arguing. We could call that person a teenager. But however you want to determine that, you know, you're guilty, but hey, let's keep arguing, let's keep going. Nobody laughed at that. You guys are lying in church because you know what I'm talking about. Um, so the reality is we understand this picture of, listen, we keep arguing. Even though we're guilty, the evidence is before us. It shows that we're guilty, but let's keep arguing about it. So what Paul has been doing, he's been cutting away um, any grounds that we may think we have for being right before God on our own. It makes for some very uncomfortable messages, especially from my standpoint, but they are all most beneficial messages. So Paul moves relentlessly towards his conclusion that no one on their own will ever be found right before God. And granted, in today's world, these aren't popular messages. They aren't messages that people are seeking out, but they are messages of hope. I think of the words of John Piper who said this, this is not a popular message. Understandably, it is no more popular than the doctor's words, your tumor is malignant. But it is vastly more hopeful. Your tumor is malignant may or may not be hopeful news because the doctor may or may not have a cure for your cancer. But you are under the power of sin and a child of wrath always has a cure. That is what the book of Romans and what Christianity and the Bible are all about. Brothers and sisters, that under our sin, we have a hope. And the hope that we have has a name. And his name is Jesus. This is the picture and this is the point. So what I want us to do is I want us to continue our difficult yet freeing journey today. As we are taking on what you see on the screen, the title is Let God Be True. And that is the declaration today. Let God and his word and his declarations be true. Because guess what? They are true. May we see them for what they are. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to read Romans 3, 1 through 20 together. And these are some difficult, difficult verses. I'm not going to lie to you, but let's just see where the Lord takes us. Beginning at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. Father, we again just approach you. We do so humbly, God, knowing that, Lord, this is a difficult passage. There's difficult truths here, but yet, Lord, all truth is good for us. Lord, just speak to us, God, today. Speak to us by your word. Lord, speak through me in a way that points people, God, not to me, but to you and to your salvation, to the hope that you have given to us. Lord, speak, for we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And again, you may be seated. So as Paul begins chapter 3, he hears in his head objections that he thought would be raised uh, by his Jewish readers. He conducts this imaginary argument by which he's picturing the Jews standing before him with their Hebrew Bibles in their hands saying, hang on a second, Paul, are you saying that all of this is worthless? Are you saying that it does no good for us to be Jews, for us to be circumcised? Are you saying that us having this book is not worthwhile? Isn't this the book of God. And if it's from God, then how can it be of no value? What they're saying is, in Paul's mind, are you saying that all these stories about Abraham, about Moses, about Joshua, about Ruth, about David, about Esther, are you saying that all of these things are of no value to us? And the answer that Paul would give them is, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, because you're trusting in them, and all of those things pointed to Jesus, and you're refusing to trust in him. That's what Paul would say, but the way we might say today is this. Well, hang on, Micah. Are you telling us that growing up in a church, having a Christian family that raised us, us raising a Christian family, all the while making sure that our kids are in church, maybe even sending our kids to Christian school, are you saying that that's all worthless and maybe even harmful? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, please keep listening. Because this is vital. Those things are absolutely worthless and harmful if that is what you're trusting in for your salvation. If you're trusting in your church attendance or your kids being in a Christian school or anything else for your salvation other than Christ, those things are harmful and they are absolutely worthless. And listen, the, the fact that we feel ourselves having um, that objection shows that we're reading the book of Romans right. So the fact that we're even feeling the strain here right now and going, is that what he's saying? It shows that we're reading Romans the way Paul intended for us to read it. A lot of people try to soften the words of Paul. And they try to say, well, you know, Paul was really, he was kind of a harsh, but he really had a loving heart. And this is kind of what he would mean today. And listen, we cannot do that. We must not um, Water down, we must not soften what Paul is saying. Romans 3 is meant to show us that the whole world is accountable to a God who knows all and to a God who sees all. 
So what I want us to do is I want us to unpack today three truths that proclaim the truthfulness of God over, hear this, any truth that we might come up with today. Listen, we, we live in a world where we hear all the time, just speak your truth. But if our truth goes against this truth, then our truth is a lie. And God's truth is truth and will forever be true. So truth number one is this. We have the promises of God. So the point number one, we have the promises of God. And there's, there's so much in these verses that we can't get to today. I, I have set this series up in a way that we will only deal with the, the overall themes of each section. As I told you in week one, one of my pastor heroes, John Piper, preached through the book of Romans in eight years. Now let me just tell you, God didn't wire me that way. I, there is no way in the world that I could go through an eight-year series. I just, God has not wired me in that way. I would go crazy. I, I've got to start and I've got to finish. And somewhere in the middle, I would be done. I mean, it just wouldn't happen for me. So God wired me in this way that 38 weeks is good. And we'll go through this book in 38 weeks. But in the first eight verses, Paul is address, addressing objections that he knew would arise. Objections like, is there not an advantage to being Jewish? Basically, what they were saying is this, Paul, if you attack God's chosen people, aren't you attacking the integrity of God who chose his people? So the bottom line is, if our Jewish heritage doesn't make us right with God, then what advantage is there to being Jewish? And this is a good place for us to stop. Hold that thought. What advantage was there to being a Jew? Now, anybody who has studied the history of Judaism, especially through Scripture, understands their difficult history. The Jews experienced slavery, deportation, persecution, dispersion, intimidation, and mass genocide. They were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness trying to get to the promised land. Once they got to the promised land, they fought war after war after war as all the nations surrounding them didn't want them in the land. They then had a civil war between the northern kingdoms and the two southern kingdoms in which they split up. Eventually, the northern kingdom would be conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. Eventually, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, would be, and Judah would be conquered by Babylon in 587 B.C. And that's not even to mention the, the Holocaust of World War II where 6 million Jews were killed and not even to mention the anti-Semitism that still lives today. And so think about all those things and the question becomes, so what advantage was there to being a Jew? And the reality is, in spite of their difficult history, the Jewish history is difficult, but yet it was a refining history. God was doing these things and allowing these things to refine his people's trust in him. But in spite of all of that, listen, they were still God's chosen people. God chose his people, these people, so that God could, through them, be a blessing to all people, including us. There's a benefit in that. Yet ultimately what Paul wanted his readers to understand is that although Jewish heritage was important, please hear this, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to say, I'm a Jew. It wasn't enough just to say, I'm persecuted. Or, or excuse me, I'm, I'm circumcised. We talked about last week, and I didn't have a chance to bring this up, but it was actually believed in that day that if you were a circumcised male, that Abraham would be outside of heaven, and he would automatically let all circumcised males in because they were Jews. I mean, this is a picture of what they believe, that all it took is to be Jewish and you get in even if you bypass Jesus. 
And we know that's not what the Bible teaches. The next objection that Paul knew was coming was the unfaithfulness of the Jews. So another thing that we know when it comes to Jewish history was it was a history of failure. God called the people of of Israel, he called them a stiff-necked people. He called them rebellious people. Later on, he would call them people who broke covenant. Adulterers is what he would say. They failed to believe his promises. They failed to obey his word. Even though Israel, in large part, even though they failed to believe God, God still sent salvation. He still kept his promises. Understand this. Not believing God's promises will not nullify God's promises. Or think of it this way. If you choose not to believe the promises of God, you don't hurt the promises of God. You hurt yourself. So choosing not to believe the promises of God don't hurt God's promises at all. It hurts yourself. If every human being who has ever lived declared that God is faithless, God would still be found to be faithful and every person would be found to be a liar. This is a picture of how it works. Or put it this way, God will win the verdict when the world goes on trial. When the world goes on trial, and it will, God will win the verdict. How do we know that? Because he's the judge. Because he's the judge, therefore he'll win the verdict. It is what's coming. He is true. He is faithful. He is an unlying God. He's incapable of lying. He is forever faithful to his word, even if we're unfaithful to ours. Look at verses 2 through 4 that are on the screen up here. It says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the promises of God, the word of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Listen, the Jews were given the oracles of God, the promises of God. God spoke through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. God spoke through um, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Malachi, many, many others. Having the word of God for them was an unspeakable advantage. And praise God, it's an unspeakable advantage for us. And I say that because this, do we understand that in a world, we live in a world that has 7,000 languages. There are still 2,000 languages in our world that do not have scripture in their language. Of the 7 plus billion people in our world, there are still over 1.5 billion people who do not have or possess what we have in our hands. They don't have the word of God. We do have the word of God. But here's the question. Do we appreciate the word of God? And do we take advantage of the word of God? Or do we have enough dust in our Bibles to write the word guilty? How are we living? What are we doing? Are we taking advantage of the word that has been given to us? Listen, God's word is of great advantage because it gives us a written description of God's nature, of God's heart, of God's plan and purpose of redemption for us. You see, when, when we give our lives to Christ, it's not the end of the story. When you give your life to Christ, Christ doesn't just pat you on the back and leave you to drift in a sea of human speculation. No, we are given, we have His Word. And hear this, the Word of God will change our lives forever. The Word of God will change our lives forever. How many of you have ever heard of the story of the mutiny on the bounty? Anybody? So a few of us, um, the backstory of this story is the most amazing because it shows the power of God's word. Let me just share with you. So the, the HMS bounty sailed from England in 1789. 
The crew was commissioned by the British government to make the islands of the South Pacific more habitable, bringing fruit trees, food-producing plants, showing the people how to cultivate all of those things. And it took 10 months to go from England to their destination. After living there for 16 months, they were commanded by their captain to leave. So get the picture. You're from England. You are now, for the last 16 months, in surf and palm trees and perfect weather. And your captain says, hey guys, it's time to go back to England. And you say, uh-uh, nope, not going back. This Pacific life is nice for me. I'll take it here. So there was mutiny on the bounty. They tied their captain up, put him on the ship, along with other uh, loyal sailors, and they let the, the ship drift into the sea. They stayed on the island. An expedition was then sent from England to recover the captain and the loyal crew members, while also to find the perpetrators and bring them to justice. In the meantime, nine of the sailors who were left there, basically what they did is they um, left the island and went to another island and formed their own colony. Yet due to their debauched and immoral lifestyles, um, all of them died of diseases except for one, a man named Alexander Smith. He was now all alone on this island with some of the women and children who had been brought over um, with the the, the mutineers, and uh, one day as he was going through the belongings of one of the men who had died, he found a Bible. He had never read a Bible before, had never held a Bible in his hand. But he said, this is a Bible, let me read it. And as he began to read the Bible, he began to believe the Bible. As he began to believe the Bible, he began to apply the Bible. And as he began to apply the Bible, he thought, you know what, this book says to teach others, let me just do that. So he began to do that. He had daily classes where children and women were brought in and he taught them the scriptures. Now fast forward 20 years because that's how long it took for the British government to finally find them on this island. And when they came, they were astonished at what they found. What they found was literally a miniature utopia. It was an island of people living in harmony, prosperity, and blessing. There was no crime, there was no disease, there was no immorality, there was no illiteracy because all the children were taught how to read the Bible and all of it was accomplished by reading, believing, and applying God's Word. And it goes to remind us, brothers and sisters, that this book doesn't just have the power to change a life, it has the power to change a culture. It has the power to shape and change culture. However, here's what we know. Not everyone exposed to the truth will believe the truth. Not everyone who's exposed to the truth will surrender or submit to the truth. But we must see this book as the Word of God. It doesn't contain um, words of man about God. It is the Word of God. It contains the way to God. It gives promises of God and it's ours. By the grace of God, it is ours. And I pray that all of us would feel about this book the way that John Wesley did. Listen to the words that John Wesley wrote. He says, I'm a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended, has come down to teach the way. 
For this very end, he came from heaven and he hath written it down in a book. Oh God, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Brothers and sisters, we give ourselves to so many things. I'm afraid if we're not careful, we can say in here and to our shame, we are, we are men and women of this room of, of CNN and Fox News. We're men and women of this show or that show or this series and that series. But what we are not is men and women of the word. That we value this over everything else. That we um, bring this in. That we, we can't get enough of the bread that God has given to us. Brothers and sisters, we have the promises of God. May we live based on those promises. So that's true number one. We have the promises of God. But then secondly, and this is when it gets tough, we are under the indictment of God. So Paul goes on, we're under the indictment of God, and Paul now uses an Old Testament mashup, so to speak, to illustrate the depravity of humanity. In verses 9 through 18, Paul brings out a 14-count indictment against humanity by using 14 quotes from the Old Testament that he piles together. So scripture upon scripture upon scripture upon scripture that shows the magnitude of our guilt. And these indictments fall into three categories. First of all, who a person is in their heart. So who they are at the depths of themselves. Second of all, the words they speak. And third, the things they do. So who they are in their heart, what they say, and what they do. And just follow with me here. Look at verse 10. We're going to just walk through this together. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So to be righteous is a positional term. We stand before God not in right standing with him because we have wronged him. The word righteousness also means right clothing. Without Christ, brothers and sisters, we are like Adam and Eve trying to sew our own clothes together and we stand before God and it's not enough to cover us. We are guilty before him. We are all guilty. Listen, it's it's as though we're all born and we have a spiritual passport. And on that spiritual passport, there's one of two stamps. There's a stamp that says under sin, or there's a stamp that says under grace. And Paul's astounding statement is that the Jews and Gentiles, the religious and the unreligious, are all under sin. We come into this world, and when we get out our spiritual passport, they all say under sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, that's next week's sermon, so I won't get ahead, but think about this. When we hear this, we often say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as somebody else. I've gotten further than them. So I want you to imagine, I would just imagine this, and this is a great thing to imagine. Imagine myself, Pastor Jordan, and Dean in Hawaii. Can, can, can you imagine it? Do you see it, Dean? Imagine one night, and I'm, I'm not telling you what, what we're doing, but something was in our minds enough that we said, hey, Let's swim from here to Japan. And all of us said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So we start swimming, and we start swimming. Let me just tell you, I'm not the swimmer. So about 200 yards out, I got a cramp. Down I go, I'm done. Dean is keeping up with Pastor Jordan for a little bit. Maybe Dean makes it a mile. And finally, Dean looks over at Jordan and says, I'm out. I'm done. Down he goes. 
And let's just say Pastor Jordan, this high school swimmer that he is, he goes and he's at the five-mile mark. He's at the 15-mile mark. He's at the 25-mile mark. And finally, he says, like Forrest Gump, I'm tired. <laughs> and down he goes. Now, think about this. Is one of us more drowned than the other? No, we're all done. We, we, we are all sharp meat. Listen, it doesn't matter which one of us got further. None of us got to Japan. None of us reached the mark. So here's the picture. As, as people, listen, we got to be careful not to say, well, I've made it further than them. Listen, yeah, you might have made it further than them, but you're still going to drown. You still have no hope apart from faith in Christ. Then look at verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now, that's a powerful picture. No one seeks for God. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says, and this is so powerful. He says, we see people searching desperately for peace of mind, relief from guilt, meaning and purpose to their lives, and loving acceptance. We know that ultimately these things can only be found in God. Therefore, we conclude that since people are seeking these things, they must be seeking after God. But people do not seek God. They seek after the benefits that only God can give them. The sin of fallen man is this. Please hear this. Man seeks the benefits of God while at the same time fleeing from God himself. We are by nature fugitives. Brothers and sisters, the declaration over our lives is we want what God gives to us, but we don't want him. And in not wanting him, it makes us fugitives running from God, not seeking God. If you're here today and you are seeking God, let me tell you what it means that he's seeking you, that he's after you, that he is working in your heart and life through his spirit. Then look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And this is a, a picture that many people stand against. No one does good, not even one. Now let that sink in for a second. No one does good. Now we read the Bible and it's true in a sense that we were created in the image of God. Therefore, we were created and God said, it's good. So we were created as image bearers of God. That's a good thing. But we don't have to read very far into Genesis before we see sin came and what was created to be good became really, really bad. Man gave themselves over to sin. They killed other people. They stood against God. They stood against Noah. They refuse to believe God. Now, let me just say this. It is certain that unbelievers can contribute to society. Unbelievers can do some amazing things for society. Unbelievers can get us into space. Unbelievers can find cures for certain forms of, of cancer and do a lot of scientific research. But here's the deal. When it comes to standing before God, by which we all will, no one measures up. Here's the point. The best person you will ever know still needs Jesus Christ as their Savior. The best person you will ever know still needs Jesus as their Savior. Now on to our words. For the place in which we most see our corruption is the words. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So our words carry the stench of death. The venom of asp is under their lips. So we use our words to hurt people, to kill people, to destroy people. Verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. James says to the child of God, this shouldn't be. 
Now verse 15, what we do, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And now sometimes we would say, well, I've never killed anybody. Well, have you ever sought the misery or ruin of someone? You ever spread a rumor against someone? What was that? It wasn't for their good. It was for their ruin and their misery. And then verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that sums it all up. Ultimately, God and his authority are not, or just not that big of a deal to us. Listen, these verses 9 through 18 are God's complete indictment against humanity. So how many are righteous? None. How many are guilty? All. And I know messages like this today in our, our day and age, we don't like to hear these. We would so much rather sit in a sanctuary and have a pastor tell us how great we are and how good we are and how amazing we are and that God did something amazing when he made us. I always say, now Brother Curtis always says that when God made him, he was just showing off. But, you know, we, we would love messages like that. We would love to hear those kind of things. But here's the deal. Here's what we have to understand. One theologian put it this way. It is no kindness but a terrible wrong to hide from a criminal the sentence that must surely overtake him unless pardoned. It is no kindness but a terrible wrong for a physician to conceal from a patient a cancer that will destroy him unless quickly removed. It is no kindness but a terrible wrong for one acquainted with the hidden pitfalls of a path he beholds someone taking not to warn him of his danger. So, brothers and sisters, we are under the indictment of God. Apart from Christ, we are guilty. We have fallen short. We have missed the mark. So we have the promises of God. We are under the indictment of God, which leads us to truth number three. We benefit from the law of God. We benefit from the law of God. It's a benefit. But let me say first, and this is going to sound a little weird, but just follow with me here. We don't, need to, we don't need the law to do things that we love. And what I mean by that is this. You never have to command me every morning to drink coffee. Don't have to do it. You don't have to command me to eat bacon. You don't have to command me to eat cake. And you don't have to command me to kiss my wife. I enjoy all of those things. You don't have to command me to do that. But then think about the commandments. I love those things. But love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Man, I don't love that. Don't worship anything other than God. What? Well, don't like that. Honor your father and your mother. Well, you don't know my parents, God. Remember the Sabbath. Rest in me. Well, I don't want to rest in you. I want to do it myself. And we begin to fight back against that. Listen, the law is only required where my heart desires to go the wrong direction. For example, let me just give you an example. When I was nine years old, we were in Ocean Way, and my parents bought a pig that we kept at another church member's house. We were going to raise this pig, and in my parents' mind, we were going to benefit from the deliciousness of ham and bacon. Now, I will never forget, I was nine, my sister was ten. One night, my parents thought it was a great idea as we sat down over a ham to, for us, for them to tell us that this was our pig. Kelly began screaming and crying and yelling. And not long after, I began to do the same. And we immediately went on a hunger strike. Like, we aren't touching it. And we went a hunger strike that lasted 15 minutes. But we were, I mean, it was a terrible idea. But we, my parents bought a pig and it was um, every other week we would go over and it would be our responsibility to feed the pig. I know some of you are looking at me going, Micah, I didn't know you were a farmer. 
I'm not. I am a city slicker. I remember one time we had a youth event. We did a scavenger hunt. And one of the things we had to do is we had to go to Brother Curtis's, the, the dairy, and we had to milk a cow. And I was like, I got this. So I climbed under the cow, and I was like, I had my leg out, and I got under, and I was trying to do it, and the cow pooped all over my leg. I had to ride in Miss Martell's Cadillac on the way back to the church with my leg hanging out the window. I mean, everything about this was terrible. The point of being, listen, I'm no farmer, but I would go out with Dad during our week, and we would uh, feed our pig, get this, Wilbur. It's never a good idea to name something you're going to eat. So just learn lessons here. I believe we named the other pig, their, their pig, Charlotte. So it was Wilbur and Charlotte. It was our week to feed. And so I don't know if you know this, but, but pigs eat slop, which is the nastiest, most rotten stuff you can give and put in a trough, and pigs love it. But when we went out, get the slop, went to the pen, my dad never looked at me and said, now Micah, I'm about to put this slop in the trough, and I want you to promise me you're not going to eat any of it. That wasn't a desire in my heart. You could lock me in that pen all day long, and guess what? I'm not eating the slop. Now, Wilbur and Charlotte, on the other hand, they're like, let's do it. Put it out. Let's, let's go. Let's have at it. Let's, pigs, their nature is different from ours. You put nationalists in front of us, and it's like, no. You put nationalists in front of pigs, it's their nature. Let's, let's go. But the law is like a fence around that trough keeping Wilbur and keeping Charlotte out. But let me tell you what we know. Pigs will knock down that fence to get to that slop. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, we will run right through the law in order to get to our sin. We will run right through it, right past it, in order to get to what we want. Understand, the law is not a checklist. It's a benchmark that we fail. Yet, it's a benefit because it shows us how far we've fallen and it shows us that we need a Savior. Look at verses 19 and 20 on the screen. It says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God since... Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Whenever someone reads the law, no matter how loyal, how kind, how thoughtful, how generous, how loving they are, their only response can be, I am a sinner and I need your salvation. Or I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. And let me say again, this is a depressing truth. I get it. But a depressing truth is better than a sweet lie any day. A depressing truth is better than a sweet lie any day of the week. We cannot trust the law to save us, and we cannot trust ourselves. Listen, trusting the law to save you or trusting yourself to save you is like jumping from a plane, and instead of grabbing a parachute, you, you grab a, a, a picture or you, you grab a, um, a jar or, excuse me, a sack of cement, and I'm going to take this and jump and see what happens. What happens is going to bury you even further. And that's the picture of what the law or trusting in ourselves do. So what sets us free? It's not ourselves. It's Jesus. There's a story that's told that shows us the ingenious way that people um, found to go free. This happens in Ontario, Canada. A man was arrested for armed robbery and taken to the incarceration facility. The constable, which is their version of the police, noticed um, a cross around the prisoner's neck. Now, 
um, interest the constable because he knew that this guy was not religious at all. So he said, hey, man, um, I like the cross. Um, tell me about it. And the guy said, well, it's just a cross. It's just a, a symbol. And he said, well, he noticed there was a protrusion out the top of the cross. And he said, what, what is that? And the, the prisoner said, oh, it's just a design. It's nothing. There's nothing to it. Not convinced, the constable said, well, let me see it. And he discovered that that little protrusion from the top of the cross could unlock any set of handcuffs and even unlock the bars in the prison. Get this. They began to go around the prison and realize there was many different criminals wearing the same cross. Don't miss this. The cross for them became the key to freedom. In the same way, brothers and sisters, the law doesn't save us, but the law points as a benefit because it shows us we can't save ourselves. It points away from itself, and it points to Jesus and the cross, which become the key for our salvation. We are saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. We have the cross of Christ by which we go free. We're able to go free. Let me close today with the words of John Gerstner. And these are powerful words. I want you to hear them. I want you to think about them. I want you to take them in. He says this, The way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. There's nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God except for the sinner's delusion. The delusion that his good works can satisfy God. And he says this, all the sinner needs is need. But alas, their eyes are fixed on a mirage. They will not drink the real water. They die of thirst with water all about them. Brothers and sisters, if you're in this room today, or if you're listening at home, Anyone that's listening, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you are trusting in a mirage. You're trusting in something that cannot save you. And you are thirsting. And the Word of God tells us we come to Jesus. He is water. He's a fountain of water. And we drink of Him in faith. And we are saved. We come to Christ. We come to the cross of Christ. And we come with empty hands. According to the Apostle Paul in verse 19 and 20, we come with closed mouths. I love that Paul says that. He says, close your mouth. Just close your mouth and come to Jesus. What, what a great word for us today. Stop arguing. Just close your mouth and come to Jesus. And come with empty hands. You can't bring anything to him. He brings it all. He gives it all. And all that he gives is enough. I pray today that we would receive from him all that he can give. But let me say this to the child of God in this room. Is this book your life? Is this book your bread? Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you, do you believe them? Do you pray them? On Wednesday night, I shared a message about how I was praying um, Psalm 16 on Tuesday. And God just spoke to my heart in different ways as I, was, as I was praying. So I just read every verse and whatever God lays upon my heart, just pray. And in doing so, God reminded me of some sweet, amazing promises. And it took me to other promises by which I was reminded, listen, God's not done. He's not done with me. He's not done with you. He's not done with our church. And holding those promises, let me tell you, it's a precious thing. It's a sweet thing to say, listen, I don't know how this works out in the world. I don't know. This might not even look like it's looking right now. But God, this is what your word says. And I'm going to stand upon it.
And God, may every person who declares something different be found to be a liar. And God, you're going to be faithful. Oh, to God, that we would do that, that we would hold to his promises. He is faithful. So let's pray. I'm going to ask you to stand up. We're going to call the praise team down. And, and let's, let's pray. Fathers, we approach you now. We do so. Having seen this indictment that Paul writes, having understood the value of the law and understood, Lord, the amazing value and power of your word. Father, I pray for any that's in this room today or any that's listening that doesn't know you. Any that's been trusting in themselves, trusting in their goodness, trusting in someone else's religion that they passed on to them. Without ever, Lord, trusting you, Jesus Christ, alone. I pray that today would be a day, Lord, that individuals would turn from trusting themselves. Turn from trying to argue away their sinfulness and understand their sinfulness, God, before you, a holy God. And the beautiful thing, God, is you love us just like you are, or just like we are, excuse me, but you don't keep us that way. Or you make us different. Or do that, I pray, today, even in this moment. And Lord, I pray for the child of God in this room that we would, Lord, we would desire you more than we would desire sin. We would desire your word more than we desire, Lord, other things that we fill our minds with. That we would know your promises, that we would believe your promises, that we would pray your promises. God, just do a work. Do a work here, Lord, that can only be explained by you. It can't be explained by us. It can't be explained by our ingenuity. It can't be explained by our power, our strength, our wisdom. Or do something that can only be explained, God, by you. So that you might get all the praise, honor, and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.